Okay, tonight I'm going to talk about economics. Uh, you ever see this magazine, The Economist? Wake up, Democrats, right? There's politics and economics, and economics goes with politics. Uh, some of you guys are going to consider The Economist a liberal rag. I read it. Uh, I also study things like the Harrisburg Independent, which uh, hasn't been published in a while. I think my edition right here is from 1885. Uh, why am I reading that? Well, one of the news stories of the day back then was the South Pennsylvania sale. And it was the attorney general getting involved uh, with Vanderbilt wanting to buy or sell a railroad. So economics and politics have always been tied together. That's my point of bringing that out. We're not going to talk about um, the evils of Joe Biden tonight. We're going to talk about the evils of Donald Trump, the good of Donald Trump, the good of Joe Biden, uh, if you can find any. We're going to talk about basic economic principles. So what am I talking about with basic economic principles? Well, you, you can think of them in different ways. And, and by full disclosure, we're going to call this uh, economics one with someone else who knows less than you do. That's me. I know less than you do. Um, or you can assume that any given person in the audience knows more about something than I do. So if I go off the rails or you know something or you want to ask something, throw it in the in the chat. We'll get that chat up and running um, and we'll start discussing uh, what what you guys want to talk about. But why am I bringing this up? So, for instance, I put a chart up about inflation. Now, everybody's very worried about inflation. Inflation's the highest it's been in a long time. If you're my age, you might remember when inflation was this high before. Uh, it was when I was young. So if you're my age or a little older, you probably remember it even more. Uh, but I remember things like, for instance, under Ronald Reagan, when I was a kid and people were borrowing money to buy a house, the interest rates were between 8 and 10%, let's say, right? So today, the Fed raised the rates. What rates did they raise? So I'm just jumping all around here, right? But wh where am I going with this? Okay. What rates did they raise? Uh, how does that interplay with inflation? Why are they doing it? So let's just start for a second and talk about what they're hoping to accomplish. They're trying to cool off the economy. They're trying to slow down the economy because the inflation is related to the economy being, surprise, surprise, too hot or maybe too strong or growing too quickly. And I know Boulder Dash, you say, because I know for a fact that our economy is in shambles. Well, our economy is not in shambles. Our economy is, in fact, at full employment, arguably. The employment, unemployment rate of people seeking jobs is very low. We now employ, give or take, as many people as we did before the pandemic. The exact mix is different, much less government people than we did before the pandemic, more people in private industry. So companies are scrambling to find employees, scrambling to find employees. So wages have gone up. Your wage may have gone up a few percentage points. Your wage may not have gone up. It doesn't matter, by the way. Let's, let's back up for a second. What's happening with you is interesting. Um, what's happening with you is important. It's particularly important to you. What's happening with me is very important to me. But when we talk about economics and trends in an economy, we're talking about millions of people, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in the United States, literally and billions of people worldwide. And it is the economic clash and interests of all these parties that come together to create the aggregate. So right now I can find some guy who will tell you 
that he's making the least amount of money he's ever made, he owes the most money he's ever owed, and he sees no hope for the future whatsoever. I can also find you somebody else who says that they've never had it better, they've never made this much money in their life before, uh, they moved to a new city, everything's great, and they cannot believe how good things are going and they see nothing but rainbows and unicorns for the future. Um, both of those people have valid views of the world. They have accurate views of the world. That's a uh, tasty refreshment. Uh, they have valid views of the world individually. So actually one of the reasons I brought the polar seltzer out here is you get this at Sam's Club, right? I've noticed the price increases. So I was buying cubes of Coca-Cola and now I'm buying cubes of Pepsi because they're still $3 cheaper than the Coca-Cola. So I just assume as soon as they run out of that, see, that's going to go up. But the polar has been going up, you know, so you think maybe I should have bought 15 flats of it instead of just one, right? Um, part of the problem is, is individual storage capacity, finances. We can't just all buy bulk for the future. Um, but we're going to talk about that in a second and, and how Walmart and Sam's Club have played into the historical inflation rates in the United States. So maybe that's some foreshadowing. Uh, well, where was I going with all that? Well, I was just explaining, you know, these, these numbers are important, right? And each person's individual view of the world and their own economic experiences are important. Uh, I'd like to hear about what you guys think. So we know this, some surveys were done very recently, and these are mainstream, respected by economists, reported by the Wall Street Journal and The Economist. And why everybody's confused is very simple. The average person basically answers, and I say average again, remember, across the aggregate basically says, I am better off today than I was five years ago, full stop. I believe I will be better off five years from now than I am today. Generally speaking, when people answer those two questions that way, they also then answer, and I I'm, think the economy is peachy and I'm doing really well right now and I'm not scared at all and I think everything's great. And I think overall, everything's great. Instead, people are saying they're concerned about the economy in general, and they're worried about it. And that while they personally aren't as harmed by it or perceive themselves as not harmed by it very much, um, they do recognize that other people are being harmed. Yet each person seems to hold that same view. It's kind of like when 80% of people say they're happier than most, which is impossible because if you're happier than most, um, you could only be in a fifth, certain 50% plus, right? Or 50, less than 50% uh, because only 50% people, yeah, you get the point. The point is that people's perceptions are not always reality, but that's perception. And why is that important? Because economics is, it's been called the dismal science, right? Part of the reason is because economics is a lot about animal spirits, um, how you're feeling, what your perceptions are. So one of the things they're worried about is why are they raising the rates? They want to cool off the economy and they want to push down business activity so that inflationary pressures do not become entrenched. What does entrenched mean? It means expected. So if you live in some of the countries of the world that have had high inflation for the last few decades, particularly underdeveloped nations, you know on Monday that something will be more expensive on Wednesday, so you try to buy it on Monday. In the United States right now, just think back a couple of years when you walked through the Sam's Club or the Walmart and you saw the light bulbs were a buck ninety nine or the steaks were four ninety nine or whatever the price was, you pretty much concluded in the back of your head that that would be the price the next time you came back to the Walmart. Right now, all of us are experiencing what I was talking about with my soda here or seltzer water as the case may be. Uh, 
that we can literally see over the last few months, the prices rise. So when I walk into the Walmart or the Sam's, I might actually make that choice and say, I should buy two or three of these because I expect it to rise. That's entrenched inflation. People are mentally committed to the idea um, that inflation is real and, and that they're stuck with it. Okay. They're literally entrenched. Japan had the opposite problem for the last 20 years. They've been entrenched in the idea that things will never go up. And as a result, they had a hard time growing their economy. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. And if you look at the chart I put up the other day, which I don't have in front of me now, but if you look at my Facebook page, you'll see that Japan has had some inflation and their inflation rate is still really low compared to what we would consider high. In fact, their high rate right now was our preferred rate. Uh, the economists, the Federal Reserve, those folks, they want to keep inflation around 2%. No one knows, uh, I say no one knows, is 2% a good idea? Is 2% a bad idea? Um, I don't know. That's the number that they've picked. They're the experts. They think that 2% is the right idea, okay? So we're trying to cool the economy off and beat down prices. Uh, then... We're going to avoid entrenchment. You won't expect things to inflate. And then they'll let, loosen the economy back up again and let it heat up a little more, but hopefully without overheating and causing inflation. Now, are there any upsides to inflation? There are upsides to inflation. Um, if you know what the upsides to inflation are, raise your hand. Uh, the major upside to inflation is it decreases the cost of paying back your debts. In other words, your debts are based on borrowing that you did at one point in time. And if money becomes less valuable and cheaper and easier to get, so you get more money in your paycheck because of inflation, then the money you're paying your debt back with is worth less. So if they need 100 smackers to pay down your debt, and now 100 smackers is worth half as much because of inflation years later, then you're only paying half as much in debt. So the only upside for consumers, and this is especially a big upside for government, right? Keep that in the back of your head. Maybe that's why government has a different version of what they like from inflation. Big governments have been known to inflate their way out of debt crises because they don't have to pay back the debts at the same rates thanks to inflation. The other thing that inflation does for a government uh, increases the payroll tax, right? Because inflation, a lot is shown in wage and a lot of inflationary pressures are created by wage, wage increases. So a truck driver that was making $1,000 a week five years ago might be making $1,400 a week now. Well, his FICA tax, right, that he pays and the employer pays is a percentage of that paycheck. So government revenue goes up during inflationary periods as well. So the dollars they're paying their debt back is now cheaper and they have more dollars to do that with. Uh, so governments really like inflation for certain purposes. Uh, on the other hand, people tend not to like really high inflation because while it may knock down the mortgage you're repaying slowly over the years, it pinches you more in your immediate costs. Um, I did jot down some notes. You know, one of the things that's happened in the United States is we've become very used to low inflationary rates. So if you're 30 year old listening to this right now, you've probably never lived in a period of inflation, but you've also probably never lived in a period where you could put money in the bank and make money by putting money in the bank. So when I was a kid, they wanted you to take money up to the bank and put it in a savings account because the nice lady at the bank was going to give you 6% interest. Okay. What does that mean? That means if I put a hundred dollars in, I'd get six bucks back 
in a year's time on that hundred dollars and that would compound um we haven't seen six percent interest on a kid's savings account or a regular run-of-the-mill withdraws you want savings account in a really long time in fact we haven't seen six percent on a certificate of deposit in a really long time so the fed has raised the interest rates right well the interest rate they've raised is actually let me see here the federal funds rate okay that's not the prime rate the prime rate is according to the internet uh, usually about three percent higher than the fed funds rate okay so then the prime rate is what banks so so the, the fed rate is what banks loan money to each other at roughly the prime rate is what they loan money to their best business customers with the best credit in theory. So somewhere out there, there's somebody who borrows a prime rate. No one's ever actually met him or her or the company, but they allegedly exist, right? According to the bank, that's what the best customer would get. There's always a reason why maybe you're not their best customer. So that's the interest rate. You, now that your credit card rates or mortgage interest rates are somewhat market driven, but they're often tied again to the prime rate and the prime rate is constructed by uh, the Fed rate. So when the Fed makes this move, it ripples through the economy. Your credit card debt can get more expensive. New mortgages can get more expensive. Borrowing between banks gets more expensive. But interestingly, the interest that banks can now pay on savings go up as well. Uh, so there is a plus side to it in that regard. Does it offset? No, it's designed to throttle down the economy. Uh, Larry Summers, uh, a Democratic uh, consultant uh, and Harvard guy who Barack Obama leaned on very heavily and who is a darling of Fox News right now because he is saying, hey, we need we're going into an inflationary period. and We're going to need to really knock down employment. The easiest way to solve this is knock down employment, which means cost people their jobs, cool the economy off because that'll push wage rates down. What's the other big cost right now? The other big cost is energy. The United States, we have electric rates. They've held pretty steady. Europe's electric rates have gone up. Um, natural gas is going up. A lot of this has to do with the Ukraine. A lot. And we're not going to go into oil today. We can get in a big fight. You guys will say, oh, this guy's not allowing drilling on public lands. And there's a little post that's been going around the internet. You know, Some 80-year-old codger who worked in the oil fields for 50 years knows this to be true. And here's like, and he swears at the end of each point that why it's true. Um, be leery of anything that says a guy who worked, you know, it's kind of like saying the guy worked in the auto repair business for years at Bob's repair shop. And he's going to tell you how Tesla stock's going to work out because, well, based on his experience of changing light bulbs and oil, um, he's got a grip on the new economy. Now, first of all, I'm not trying to belittle anybody. Uh, with that kind of experience. What I'm saying, though, is it's it's kind of a, oh, well, he's an old guy who's been in this industry for a long time, who has no name, but he's a friend of a friend whose dog's cat's uncle, uh, pinky swears that this is all true. And it sounds plausible, right? So, you know, you'll be told things like savings are good. Are savings good? My mom always said, save your pennies, right? Save your money, be responsible. We're a consumer-driven economy. If everybody in America saves a lot of money and stops spending, jobs are shed. So personal savings might be good for the person, but bad for the economy. Um, so these little you know tropes that people wheel out that are you know pay your bills. Government should never borrow money. 
So let's use a business, for example. Let's say you're in a business and you make an item, a tin can, let's say, and a customer rolls in, Coca-Cola, and says, hey, I need, I don't know, a million tin cans a month. And you're like, okay, I would, I would like to be the guy that makes a million tin cans a month for you, but I don't have enough aluminum right now to do that. And Coke says, well, here's the thing. I will pay you for the cans upon delivery. So figure it out. What a business woman does is she goes down to her bank and says, hey, I have got a company that wants me to make a million cans. Here's the purchase order from Coca-Cola. And I would like to borrow, uh, you know, $500,000 to buy the aluminum to make the cans. And I have the employees in the machinery currently, but that much aluminum is way beyond my budget. And the bank says, okay, here's a line of credit or a short-term loan. And they borrow the money. They make the cans. Coca-Cola pays. The loan gets paid off. And the next time the person needs capital to build something with, they go back to the bank. Without borrowing, there is no way to get anything done. I mean, there is, but it's so slow. One of the benefits and features of the modern economy, I say modern economy in the last few hundred years, is a strong and robust financial market. In fact, there are many ways and opportunities that the real economy can borrow from the financial economy to allow things to work. So if someone says they should be using all cash, they should never borrow money, wrong. Borrowing actually makes the most sense. Why take away from what you're doing if you can borrow someone else's money for a reasonable rate? Right now, government can borrow very cheaply. Interest rates are gonna be going up, however, and as the Fed raises the rate, uh, the Treasury may soon discover that they're having a harder time <clears throat> getting yield. And so they're going to have to raise their interest rates and the cost of U.S. debt could go up. So there, there's a little thing there. But I just, I just bring you back to the idea of these things that you hear people say, you know, don't borrow money, save a lot of money. Those are great, but they don't really answer economic questions and they don't really help us with economic puzzles. Um, you know, and a couple of things I... I I found it interesting, you know, Warren Buffett actually said, and I'll do that, I'll quote Warren Buffett, right? Because that's what everybody does, they try to make a financial point. But he said that he thought that Walmart had single-handedly held down inflation in the United States for a period of decades. Um, one of the things that proves him true is, I think Walmart's been here in Carlisle about 20 years, but it's been noticed or noted and actually studied that the price of core consumer goods in an area falls when a Walmart goes in. What does that mean? It means that like, if you own a business, I own a business, and we're selling pizzas, and we're selling pizzas for 12 bucks, and we're making $4 a pie on them, and we're the only guy that delivers in the area, we're going to keep doing that, right? And then if a new pizza shop opens up, and he sells his pizzas a little cheaper, we might have to start competing on price a little bit. So we'll maybe dial back the price of our pizza a little bit, or at least just not raise it um, going forward because we're scared that customers will start to see a price differential as compared to a flavor differential. You know, maybe we use a well-seasoned sauce and, and they use a sugared sauce that we, the other people, you know, like better, but our customers don't like so much. Who knows? what? The, but the point is, is that some competition, and in this case, Walmart's ruthless bottom line competition, their efficiencies, cause competitors to have to shed um, prices on core consumer staples. And so Warren Buffett has argued that as Walmart expanded around the country over the decades, they are a big part of why we didn't see expected inflationary rates. 
Uh, it makes sense. It's an efficiency that you can't squeeze twice, but we do have things like Aldi, right? Have shown up with cheaper produce maybe. They keep everybody on their game. So the more options you have, the more competition you have, the better consumer prices are. It's one of the arguments for globalization of economic supply chains and products is the danger and threat of low cost products from other quarters always keeps everybody on their toes. Um, but that's a discussion for another day. Um, by the way, just my side editorial gold, right? I hope you guys all followed the radio ads over the last 10 years who told you to buy as much gold as possible as an essential hedge against inflation. But if you actually study the price of gold over the last two decades versus the inflation rate over the last two decades, you'd be hard pressed to make that case that gold prices move in lockstep with inflation rates. And of course, some people say, well, that's hyperinflation. Well, I guess we're not at hyperinflation yet. Uh, Inflation rates are falling, as we'll be seeing, um, although not a lot yet. So the Walmart effect, right? So why do, why do I bring that up? Well, if we have different economic things going on right now, for instance, people have more money in their pockets, in their savings than they did in 2019. So there's more money in your pocket, in your wallet, in your bank account on average than there was in 2019. The Wall Street Journal, um, I've got my journal floating around here. Uh, I read it mainly online, but on the weekends they give me the paper version. Uh, I strongly suggest that you read, as I, as I mentioned earlier, The Economist, The Economist and The Wall Street Journal. Those two will get you where you need to be. They're both available online. Wall Street Journal online is dirt cheap these days, $4 a month. Um, what you learn from reading those is that the economic signals are mixed. So there is $6 trillion more trillion in wealth slushing around uh, the United States amongst the average people than there was in 2019. Two, two, um, two, $6 trillion. $2 trillion of that is cash, okay, available cash. Credit card debt right now is lower than it was um, at its peak under Trump. And that's not a Trump thing. It's just at that time it, it peaked. It's a little lower right now. It's not much lower. It was only like 80 or $90 billion lower. Home mortgage debt is up. Okay. Mortgage debt is up. Um, people owe a lot more money on their mortgages than they did um, a few years ago. Although those are offset by high priced assets, right? That the large mortgages are based on high home prices. There's no reason to think that home prices will crater. Home sales are, are, spinning off and price and competition is changing a little bit. But again, we don't have any reason economically to believe that the housing market is going to crater like it did in 08. We don't have all the derivatives and the loans were much more solid. The banks are more capitalized than they were back then as well. They have a lot more money on their balance sheets. People's incomes have clearly risen. We know that from the inflationary pressures and wages. Your personal income might or might not have raised. Social Security is about to go up quite a bit. There are a gazillion people on Social Security. Now, if their income only goes up 100 bucks a month or 140 bucks a month or whatever it's going to be, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but start multiplying that by tens of millions of people, and that will be a lot more cash flowing into the economy. Um, we don't know what all this means. So anybody, any prognosticator who says to you, okay, we're going into a deep, dark recession. Somebody posted on my, uh, my page about, Maybe are we going into a recession because this guy who predicted the last major recession said we're delusional if we don't think we're not going to go into a long, hard recession. 
the history of economics, economic projection, financial projection is littered with people who got it right one time and never got it right again, or got it right twice, but never got it right again. Maybe there's somebody out there who's got it right every time. But one of the interesting things, if you read, I think Freakonomics, maybe Freakonomics too, uh, they do a regression analysis. They look at Morningstar reports for top e economic advisors in the country. So they look at mutual fund performers, et cetera, et cetera. And anyhow, what you find out is that if a person makes the top you know, 25 performers in the country one year or something like this, statistically, there's no reason to believe he's likely to make it again anytime soon, let again, ever again. And so basically what it shows is that a lot of that's luck or somebody's working a strategy that just happens to work at the moment. So any dire prediction by an economist, anything where somebody says, this guy got it right in this era, and, and so we must listen and we should, but it doesn't mean he's going to be right again. In fact, uh, everything regresses to the mean. So the odds of somebody who's right about a, a black swan event being right about a second black swan event is highly improbable because there's no way he could have been right about a black swan event if it was a true black swan event because he couldn't have foreseen it by the very definition of a black swan event anyhow what i what i'm trying to point out is or even paulson the guy who made uh, a hedge fund killing during the last economic crisis he has not done well since he has a you know hasn't like become poor or anything he's still a billionaire but the the crazy economic gains that he made he hasn't been able to duplicate those because he hasn't been on the right side of a super call in a long time um so what I'm trying to say is when you hear somebody say things are going to be really rosy or really bad and they're basing it upon like some guru's prediction, um, the people in the know, the economists that I watch, that I read, all say the same thing. Paul Krugman, who I've told you I think before, who I don't always agree with, says, I could tell you, I can make an argument for anything I want with the economic indicators right now. So I don't know what else I could tell you about um, except to think that we don't have to go into a long, hard recession unless we really want to. What do I mean by that? Remember, it's psychology. So economics is, is interesting uh, because when you make an economic prediction, if people believe it, it becomes true. So not too long ago, Sirachi or somebody said that Sirachi saw was going to be in shortage. So everybody immediately ran to the store and bought the Sirachi sauce. And now it's in shortage. It's hard to find. Found some the other day. Same thing happened with toilet paper, right? There was a shortage of toilet paper. So what did you do? You bought extra toilet paper. It exacerbates the problem. If people believe there's going to be a recession and they start taking recessionary actions, um, so if you're a banker and you believe there's going to be a recession, you start calling in loans. Remember I told you earlier in order to make those tin cans, a company needs that line of credit to make the tin cans. Well, when the recession starts, the bank will call that lady up and say, sorry, ma'am, we can no longer loan you a line of credit for your tin can factory because, well, you didn't do anything wrong. We've just changed our criteria because we're worried about a recession. Now, the bank does that 100,000 times across all its customers nationwide, and 20 other banks do that same thing and reduce everybody's lines of credit. The ability of the economy to flow, the velocity of money slows down, and they get the recession they were worried about. So... What you do and how you think. Now, I'm not saying profligate spending, okay? Um, I'm not saying go out and just blow your wad everywhere you can because that's going to somehow solve the problem. What I'm saying is you can will a recession into existence. You can will bad economics into existence as a group by simply acting like that's what's going to happen. 
So one of the questions, remember I told you earlier, there's more cash sloshing around in people's pockets right now in savings from the stimulus. Their debts are paid down. There's some evidence that people are fairly resistant to stopping their spending. So if the Fed could wrestle down and use interest rates to wrestle down inflation a bit and people remain aggressive on their spending habits, uh, it's possible that we could dip into a recession briefly uh, and come out of it very quickly. It's also possible that people withdraw on their spending habits, um, but continue to produce solidly and continue to spend as necessary. The economy could adjust and again, just dip into a maybe a slightly longer brief recession um, and not have a problem. So am I going to prognosticate? What I, what I would tell you is I don't think there's any reason it has to be really negative. Now, some people want it to be really negative. They want you know to be able to say that, that somebody failed so they can have their schadenfreude or whatever. That's not good for any of us. We should all be doing what we can. Now, you may say the government should be doing this, the government should be doing that. They're perfectly fine. There's a lot of things they should and shouldn't do. There's a lot of things they do. Um, so for instance, our friends, uh, our, our Republican friends, party I'm in, who are not gonna spend a lot of money, are all signing off on, I think 14 Republican senators signed off on a $280 billion spending bill uh, that's gonna help semiconductors. But actually, 57 billion of it's going for semiconductors. I, I got to figure out where the other 200 and some billion are going, because uh, the 200 Wall Street Journal is telling me it's a 280 billion dollar bill. But when the news talks about it, they keep talking about 57 billion to, you know, ramp up semiconductor production. Well, 57 billion dollars is a lot of money anywhere, except in the semiconductor industry. The the build on a fab, the factory that produces a new generation, is in the tens of billions of dollars. So that money ain't gonna go far. We'll see what it does. Uh, I've always been a big fan of staying away from industrial policy. I think Japan proved it years ago. I think the Chinese have had some success with industrial policy, but mainly industrial espionage. Uh, industrial policy, by the way, is where government you know, sort of guides industry with funding and tax breaks or even legal mandates. Um, it sounds great. But if you don't trust the DMV and you don't trust Joe Biden, you shouldn't trust the government run by anybody, whether it's uh, Rick Santorum or Ron DeSantis or Carl Rominger or anybody else, to direct the economy. Move to China if you want a command and control economy. That isn't even really a command and control economy. When they try going more command and control, they always end up backing off for some reason. You know, they're beating up on the billionaires over there on this equality idea in China. Oh, these billionaires, you know, terrible, terrible, bad, bad, bad. How dare they? make all this money and not take care of the little guy. And all of a sudden, when the billionaires didn't want to be billionaires anymore and make more billions, the economy slowed down. Um, I have a theory that accumulations of wealth in private individuals is problematic in some ways, but positive in others, because a guy like Elon Musk can just do what he wants. And if he does it wrong, he'll lose his company and the assets will go back into everything. But if he does it right, he can do things that people would never get past the committee, let alone the government would ever do. So uh, where am I going again with that? I'm trying, I guess I'm trying to say uh, we should stay away from an industrial policy. But once again, our government spending handily, while while one person is on the news telling me, you know, I've got I've got one of the conservatives telling me, oh, Carl. Joe Biden is spending so much money, it's pushing the inflation up and we need to do something. We need to balance the budget immediately. But then there's this big uh, pork barrel business handout coming through 
and we're going to lard up a $57 billion handout into $280 billion, and it's a bipartisan effort, I think the one thing you should count on is they all lie, right? And I don't care who it is. Uh, Trump spent as much or more than Biden did on the COVID thing. So they all spend money. It's an amazing thing when you're a politician. It turns out that when you spend money as a politician, you always get rewarded for it. You never actually get in trouble for it. Um, even when people claim, it reminds me of uh, General Mills years ago wanted to get into making a, maybe a Chinese food restaurant. And their original theory was maybe healthier Chinese because consumers kept telling them that they wanted, uh, um, consumers kept telling them that they wanted healthier Chinese food, right? It's consumer service. I would like something healthier, lighter. But when they did the studies of what they actually ordered and what they actually preferred, it was not healthy meals. It was terrible for you meals. So what people say they want, what people actually will reward are two different things. So people say they want to eat healthier. They want to eat lighter, less fatty, less salty foods. There's actually been, I mean, the last 30 years, it's gone that way a little bit. But uh, you're still getting rewarded pretty handily for throwing an all-beef patty uh, and a very greasy special sauce together on a bun with a little bit of shredded iceberg lettuce, okay? So what people purport to want, and that's important in economics. Um, surveys give you some idea of what people are thinking. They vote with their money ultimately, right? Where do they put their money? Uh, and that's what consumers are saying right now. Consumers say they're concerned about the economy, but they're still spending like they believe this won't last. So maybe this won't last. Maybe this too shall pass. Uh, you know, I don't want to belabor you guys. I think the whole thesis of tonight's show was simply, there are a lot of numbers that are going to get thrown at you. You need to study them. When you get these stories about, you know, some guy whose uncle knows and this industry is doing really well, or this is why the president or the ex-president is driving this industry insane. Um, things quite often aren't very valid. Um, and I get really frustrated because I get feedback sometimes when people are like, oh, you just trust these guys. You trust these mainstream medias. Um, oh, we got a caller here. Let's see. Here. Josh. Josh, you're on the air, buddy. Hey, Carl. What's going on? So we're talking about inflation. Yes. So now is these numbers, they're considering total uh, total, you know, gross domestic product or spent or whatever, right? So, I mean, so these inflation numbers are there, there's a there's a CPI consumer consumer inflation index or consumer product index CPI index. Um, there's different ways they calculate it. Different baskets of goods. Inflation calculators also assume that when steak gets too expensive, you'll start buying uh, mutton, and when mutton gets too expensive, you'll start buying rat meat. Okay. So, so it's complicated. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post as a link on here, Josh, when we get off. The Wall Street Journal has a tool that allows you to see what the inflation on actual items you actually buy are. Because it turns out that inflation is not equal across different products. And some products have seen big increases in cost, while other products have seen little increases in cost. And so just to give you an example, use a, use a very easy example gasoline has gone up quite a bit right and diesel as you know has gone up even more but electricity has not really gone up very much so if you are a person who currently drives an electric car 
and you pay for the electricity for your electric car, you really don't see a difference in your primary energy cost. If you're a diesel user, you see a horrible difference in your primary energy cost. Um, so if you're a big bacon eater, you've probably seen some increases. But if you're a person that eats a, a lot of pinto beans, you've probably seen very little increase in your, in your core food product ranges, if that makes sense. Right. So, so let's, take, let's take the idea of fuel alone. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to talk about supply and demand in the economy itself, we could say that fuel, the price of fuel alone, would make it look like by volume the economy is doing great without any other factors. Oh, sure, if sure. If you, if you just go on, on what's being purchased. So interestingly, that's why in June when some retail trade data came out and, and they backed fuel out of it, you know, fuel costs and a few of those like um, yeah. transitory okay. things. People were still spending more on retail goods in June than they were the month before. Great. Okay, so that's good. That's just a good sign. But, yeah. Uh, and by the way, uh, we, we got some feedback, Josh. Laura said electricity went up 50% in Philadelphia. And yeah, it, you know, it's different by area. And, and what was 50% of what? Um, you know, so, so Laura, interesting question. What was your average electric bill and what is it now? Yep, 25, electricity, 25% in New York. And by the way, Ted, one of the big drivers in New York uh, that they've been talking about, and this is fascinating me, is cryptocurrency. Apparently, people mining cryptocurrency have been shown to actually be pushing the price of electricity up in the Hudson Valley region of New York. Uh, because they burn so much power. In fact, right now, the seven largest crypto uh, companies in the United States are burning the equivalent of 2.3 million homes of electricity uh, every hour. <laughs> if you increase the population, will that then create a demand for the dollar? So right now, the dollar is very strong, right? The dollar is the strongest it's been in years and years. Um, so that doesn't help foreign countries. It helps us. It lowers the price of imported goods. It hurts exports, well, I'm saying, however. I'm saying if, more, if our population increases by, say, illegal immigration or legal immigration, that is going to create more people, creating more of a demand of the dollar. Counting to say, hey, well, you know, the dollar's don't do pretty good. A lot of people have a demand for it, even though it might not be as uh, in the per house is perhaps right. increasing for, for what they use, or are they just spending, is each home spending more on, on fuel? So each house is spending more. So, so anytime, anytime you add a new consumer, you add new consumption, right? The price of consumption yep. is a separate thing. So, so it's the same thing with GDP in general. Your efficiency of a worker or how much work one worker can do is, is how much GDP he or she generates. On average, it's a certain productivity rate for an American, certain productivity rate for German, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have your number of people actually working and you can multiply your, your, your person's um, uh, ability to work. So so real classic example of that to help people understand, Josh, is if you dig dirt with a shovel, right? You can only move so much shirt, dirt in a day. But if you give the guy a backhoe, um, he can move a lot more dirt in a day, right? And right. as a result, his productivity level is much higher if we're measuring how much dirt does he move in a day. Um, so, yeah. Well, yeah. But you have to subtract the expenses involved with that. Hey, Carl, what's that picture up there above your head? Is that uh, 
uh, that's an Audi. Ah, uh, boy. Ensa GTA, which figure? I, you know what? I'll have to get back to you on that. I, yeah, it's not actually originally my picture. It's just a cool picture. <laughs> yeah, there sure is. I like it. Um, uh, yeah, a buddy of mine actually owned one of those at one time. That's that's where this comes from. Um, but he's a maniac, as you can imagine. Um, if you ever watched, oh, by the way, if you ever watched those Audi street road races where the cars like basically dust right up against the people's ankles, I always find that interesting. Um, so, so Josh, I've got Laura over here. She said property taxes are up 30 to 50%. Um, so, so Laura, interestingly, how do we explain that people haven't stopped spending or traveling? Um, one of the theories is it's the COVID hangover, right? that we're not getting real indications of how people want to spend because they're like, damn it, I'm going on vacation because the last two summers I didn't get to do what I want. And so even though gas is four times as expensive, I'm gonna get in my car and drive, right? Um, by the way, why is gas so expensive? <laughs> yeah, everyone's leaving PA to the South. You know, a few years back, just, just a complete side note, the, the various doctors' lobbies around the country were saying the doctors were leaving the state because of malpractice lawsuits. And the joke was somebody went around and collected all 50 states claimed that doctors were moving out of state because of malpractice premiums. And of course, that begged the question, like, if they're moving out of the 50 states, which state are they moving into? Uh, and what I mean by that is sometimes these tropes take a life of their own. Like, you know, people are leaving because, well, some... Somebody left, you know, it's like my buddy, he's convinced that New York City doesn't have anybody left in it, that everybody left because of COVID and they all moved out of New York City. Did everybody move out of New York City? I, no, I, I know for a fact they didn't, right? Did, did 10,000, 100,000, 300,000 move out of New York City? Possibly, yeah. They all went to Florida. And by the way, it's going to be interesting to see how this changes in the election cycles because I think enough people have repurposed their primary residence that that you know, a little blue might have got into a little red, and a little red might have got into a little blue. <laughs> um, I agree. Yeah. So there's there's Larry, an example. Hey, what about the? Are we, are we completely done with January sixth? I mean, is it? I'm watering the bridge yet because there's this uh, girl that lives over here, right here in Mechanicsburg. She her name's uh, William uh, Riley Williams. And she has been on house arrest since the 6th because her boyfriend told the FBI that she took the computer from Nancy Pelosi's place and it wasn't him. Right. So, so now we have this, and now she's on a complete, she's here in Mechanicsburg, she's on complete like gag order. She can't use her tablet, she can't use her cell phone. She's not allowed to be on the internet, the computer. She's not allowed to communicate oh. any way whatsoever about what's been happening down there. Or the fact that, now this laptop, it's disappeared okay. or, or been destroyed. They don't know what happened to it. It's MIA. So that leaves the question that if she did have it, what did she do with it? And if she didn't, and then maybe somebody else did something with it, and she's just kind of another detainee uh, in this scenario. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't focus on, on, on the sixth right now, but let's... We'll come back to that on a next show, probably, because there's a lot to talk about there that's been coming out. Um, so, Laura, you're, you're pointing out gas prices. Now, interesting question on gas prices. If you map gas prices, as I've done before, and I did one of my other shows, the highest 
gas ever was before this year was 2008. And it was very close to what it is now. And if you inflation adjust it, it might have been more than it is now that it's fallen back down. Um, diesel, I think, hit something similar, but not quite as high as now back in, again, 2008. Okay. So, like when I listen to people talk about the prices of gas under Trump, if we didn't have all the fracking that occurred under Obama, gas would have never gotten as cheap as it did in the United States. But it got really cheap after COVID when everybody stopped driving. We, we have this refinery problem. And I put a little victory lap up because Fox News was reporting it on the Fox News rundown, exactly what I've been saying, which is because we're down a million barrels a day in refinery capacity in the United States, we live on the edge right now. When gas consumption is down, fuel, liquid fuels, diesel fuels down, let's say in the wintertime, people aren't driving, mowing lawns, et cetera. Um, then they're able to make extra and store it, right? But when consumption's higher than what they're storing, it starts burning through the stocks. And that's concerning, right? Um, that's, that's very concerning. So because one hurricane, we're one hurricane away from, it doesn't matter how much oil we have right now. We literally produce as much oil as we need right now under Joe Biden, literally. Like, I mean, within a couple of barrels. Part of the problem is the oil that's produced goes out and oil from other countries comes in. That's partly because some refineries are tuned. It's partly because of the Jones Act. There's just so many moving parts. But the reality is our liquid fuels right now are dangerously hard to control because we don't have the refining capacity to push the price down. So we could drill baby drill all we wanted, but if we don't build a new refinery, which is going to take years, uh, we're going to be stuck in this dangerous position. In the meantime, the car companies have pledged and are starting to spend $500 billion by 2026 on electric car factories and electric car build out. So if I went to you, Josh, and said, hey, I need $20 billion to build this refinery. And by the way, I'm not sure what refinery capacity we're actually going to need in five years, but we won't be done with the refinery for four to six years. Um, you're going to be like, well, I don't know if I want to tie $20 billion up in an economic unit that might not be profitable in a few years, right? Um, so, so we got a real problem. We have a real crisis because it's, it's almost like government needs to step in and pay for a refinery. But half of America, there's, there's two problems with building a refinery. One is the Green Democrats are apoplectic about it. But you know who else is apoplectic about it? The Republicans, you know why? Because they don't want it in their backyard. So Ron DeSantis has been blocking Florida drilling on the on the Gulf Coast of Florida and made sure that Trump blocked it as part of their deal. I think Carolinas and uh, and Florida made sure they want any, they don't want any drilling in their water, right? So I I guarantee you, I don't care Republican or a Democrat, if you want to put a refinery somewhere, no one will sign off on it politically because it's the NIMBY problem. You know, everybody who likes to golf is fine with a golf course until somebody wants to build it on, on by their development and take over some historic farmland that they're suddenly worried about for the first time, uh, which leads me to a separate editorial. Uh, and because, Ted, you're in the Adirondacks. It's probably got some trees up there still. But anybody who's like beating up on the Congo or Brazil for deforestation, 
If you live in the United States of America, there's a 90% chance if you're here on the East Coast or the West Coast, but for sure on the East Coast, 90% chance that wherever you are right now, there used to be a tree, that you live on deforest, denuded land. You know, there was a time when a squirrel could run from Florida to Maine without ever hitting the ground, right? That's what they say. I'll take their word for it. Uh, we live on denuded, deforest, deforested land proudly, happily as Americans, right? So why are we telling everybody else they can't cut their forests down? What the hell is that about? Right, yeah, uh, Carl, the, uh, the dynamic of energy is changing quite a bit over the last you know, decade. I think probably more than has changed over the last four decades. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Okay, great, because I'm, yes, I'll, I'll speak here. So what happens is, you know, in the wintertime, we have a pretty high demand for oil, uh, jet A type diesel fuel. That's what mm -hmm. your house burns, fuel, fuel oil. So people that, depending on what type of heat that we have, that's going to, you know, potentially create a bigger demand if we have a colder winter, you know, type of thing in an area, a country. But also, a lot of this demand that seems to be popping its head up is electric car demand on just energy related. Right. So the question is, are we going to you know, put energy directly into the grid system so we can power up the cars. Because now the more energy that you run through a wire, there's resistance in a wire. Yeah. Right? And you lose a little bit of transmission power. It's not much. And the higher the voltage, the less you lose. So, but in a car, it needs a real low voltage to charge. So there's got to be a conversion there and all that. Are we going to put, you know, a refinery up just to, you know, have more oil to run a, a, a or Natural gas so, would be ideal to run a generator or whatever. Yeah. But are we going to power up directly the cars with solar or wind so they don't have to? Not at first. The There's, grid. We don't have enough solar or wind, and we won't be able to build it out fast enough to keep up with electric car demand. Um, the other thing, though, is, and remember this about Americans, God bless us, um, we're, we're all very reactionary. So right now, everybody's like, must buy electric car because gas is expensive. So everybody's saying they're gonna buy electric cars, right? Um, if gas falls back down somewhat or enough, people will be buying up gasoline cars again happily um, because, well, of course you get the electric pickup truck now, so maybe that helps. But, but you know, Americans have been intentionally choosing less fuel efficient vehicles for a long time. Uh, you know, let's face facts. That's part of the reason why our refinery capacity is a little sketchy is partly because our, our gross fuel consumption, we don't like to stay, we don't like to stay sensible. Nobody wants a thousand well, pound sedan, right? Well, fuel in a business scenario, fuel is a deduction. Well, in so a business scenario. The more expensive that your vehicle to operate, the bigger your deductions are, the less taxes you're going to pay. Right. And, and Josh, I'll just say this. Um, in a business scenario, I agree with you, but majority of the motor fuels burned by consumers are burned on um, are burned on 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 you know Hummers and SUVs. It, I was in Texas uh, on a pig hunt a number of years back, and what struck me is it was all pickup trucks at the Walmart. I mean, there was like three cars, and I'm not saying that everybody wasn't a ranch hand, right? But everybody where I was was not a ranch hand. It's just culturally, they prefer a pickup truck. And it's great. It has utility. I, I'm not discounting. I drove pickup truck for many years myself. Um, but if, if you're talking about fuel consumption, 
if everybody drove something that was twice as fuel efficient, we would need exactly one half the amount of fuel we need. So if everybody drove something that was 20% more fuel efficient, we'd use 20% less fuel. Um, instead, for the last 10, 15 years, Americans have been drifting towards higher fuel consumption per capita by choosing vehicles that are larger, heavier, um, and have, have worse mileage. So I'm not confident people are going to continue in the electric car trend because people tend to pick what they want when they think they can afford it and then throw their hands in the air and scream bloody murder when they get pinched because they, they never knew that gas could be this high. What do you mean you never knew? In 2008, it was this high. You had, you had a warning 14 years ago. I guess if you're 24, you wouldn't know. You were only 10. So if we, if we all drove a Prius, would right. that actually keep the price of fuel low? <sighs> well, that's a question. Uh, maybe. It depends what you make the Prius with. And it depends where the fuel goes the to, to make the electricity, right? Right. I think the price of fuel is more contingent upon uh, the price of uh, a couple of corporations that want to make some profits. Um, I don't think that the price of fuel even, I guess, if the demand, I'm oh, sorry, it's raining. I'm actually in my truck. But uh, if the demand actually came down, uh, the price of fuel would come down too. So the question is, is the price of is the demand going to go down, and then we can better determine what fuel is going to go to. So that would come down if we had electric vehicles. So, so, you know, so these these what ifs are exactly why I did this show because we don't know. The problem is, the economy is literally thousands of moving data points that are affected by millions of decisions that people make every day, right? And some things are cultural decisions. Uh, I am going to eat a turkey on Thanksgiving this year. It's just it, right? That's what we do. We are Americans and damn it, we're gonna eat turkeys. So if the price of turkey, turkey goes up, now, you know, and there's other people that eat hams on Easter and, and lamb on this day. And some people celebrate with seafood, you know, the, the seven seven fishes for the Sicilians at Christmas time. There's cultural choices as to what you're going to eat or where you're going to travel to, right? People make a tr journey to Mecca once in their lifetime. Here in America, people have certain like national parks they on their bucket list. Um, but a lot of decisions are based on just what you know. So if your parents lived in the suburbs and commuted 30 miles to work, you probably could fall into a pattern of of doing that. If you lived in a city and took public transportation as a kid, you might spend all your life taking public transportation as your primary. But what everybody is doing over time changes. You know, at one time everybody had black and white TVs. Do you remember remember when it was a big deal to try to get rid of your cathode ray tube, right? You know, you had this big old TV and nobody wanted the tube and what do you do with it? And now everybody's throwing out flat panels and nobody wants flat panels. That's just a different problem, right? Um, or, oh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is we don't know what's coming next, what technology is going to push people. I mean, everybody has a phone now, right? Um, everybody has a phone. That's replaced the TV. I, I got to replace the TV a lot of times. Right. And, and the amount of materials that go into a phone while they're complex and exotic, um, if you start watching a lot of your stuff on your phone and and, and a shoe, you know, there was a time when like, if you were a baller, you had a TV in every room of your house, right? Including one in the bathroom just to prove you could. 
and a little one on the kitchen counter because why not? Um, now you're like, well, I, I got a big screen TV and then I've got my tablet or my phone for anything else I need to do. And I can go sit, you know, in the basement and watch, watch my, uh, special videos, you know, alone. Uh, my, my, my point is what we do, it changes over time and our consumption changes. Americans waste one third of their food and that happens at restaurants and that happens in homes. It's not one or the other. They both waste a, a terrible amount of food. We're all guilty of it. You make something and you're like, oh, I'll throw that in the trash because I don't plan on eating it. Or you do plan on eating it, which is what the, the average ritual goes like this. I'm going to put the food in the Tupperware dish. I'm going to put it in the fridge. I'm going to pinky swear that I'll eat leftovers tomorrow. And by the time I remember it's in the fridge, too old to eat, so I, I get to throw it out, right? Um, that is a very normal thing to do, uh, but it's wasteful. If we could get people to preserve food, food costs would go down. Well, guess what tractors run on, Josh? Do you know? <laughs> right? Tractors. Yeah, they run on diesel, yeah. right? Yeah. So if we consumed one-third less food because we were better at distributing it and getting rid of the waste, we would need one third of the tractor fuel, arguably. Right. Um, so, so again, it's not to be preachy. I'm not. I'm no left wing preachy guy. I'm not going to be like, oh, you need to. How much? We need to make good how choices. Much, uh, how much fuel actually goes to waste? I mean, it's a question. Um, you know, it seems like it's a byproduct. You know, some of it's a desirable product, some of it's a byproduct. But how much of it actually goes, like in the industry? How much would actually go to waste, or is it pretty much? You know, well, there's waste. There's waste at all levels. Okay, so so if a farmer lets his kid drive the tractor around the farm lot, I mean that's his diesel. He can do what he wants with it, but it didn't produce anything, right? Maybe it produced a future farmer. Um, if he spills some on the ground, it's waste. If the plant has a pipeline spill, it's waste. You know, at each stage there's waste. But I doubt at any point that a farmer spends one third of his fuel on something he doesn't need, right? I, I doubt that you, you're, you're, you use fuel. I doubt that a third of the fuel you burn is for no particular reason at all or wasteful. I mean, you try to be, you know, make every dollar count. But when we get to the end product, I mean, the cow or the corn, you're right? Your, you're not gonna leave your tractor idle. You know, you're, gonna, you're not gonna let your do extra work. You're not gonna do work for free. Right, and you make these, you make these, Right. And so then all that makes sense. So we, at each stage, each each um, participant in this economic activity is a good steward of, of the diesel fuel. Okay. Until we get to the end consumer who throws away one third of the food, which was made with one third of the diesel fuel. <laughs> and that's, that's the craziness. Hey, listen, I can work in Baltimore and live in Carlisle. That's my right. And if I want to blow fuel driving back and forth every day, I can do it. It's not the most efficient way to do anything. I'm curious to see how this work at home thing plays out with a lot more people working at home. There are a lot more efficiencies in the economy, arguably. Less fuel is burnt getting person from A to B. Um, so we've seen a, little, a lot of uh, fluctuation in the rent market. Okay. Oh. Does that mean that the, a lot of people are moving uh, from where they, you know, from place to place, or is it just the fact that they're staying in their house and, and the price is going up? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, keep up with the taxes that Well, I've, I've been I've been in the rental market. I've been in the rental market myself, actually looking for a place. Okay. And one of the things that the landlords have pretty much uniformly told me is people aren't leaving. 
And, and what I mean by that is, and I don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm looking at different, I'm not looking at the most expensive places and I'm also trying not to live in the cheapest place possible with my son. I don't really care about me, but I'm, you know, I don't want to expose him to some crazy neighborhoods. Um, but the landlords are telling me these people aren't leaving. They literally um, are like, yeah, I had a tenant who was talking about moving away, but he couldn't find anything. So he just renewed his lease. Um, and I think a lot of people are deterred from a lack of, of housing. Now, I happen to be listening to somebody on Wall Street Journal's uh, podcast the other day, an economist who said, we are 10.8 million housing units short of what we need in the United States right now. 10.8 million. Now, that's across 300 plus million people, but that's a significant percentage. That's enough space that's needed to house people that isn't available right now, that people are crammed into places um, and that we literally need, and it's hard to build all 10 million of those in any timely fashion. So if I were speculating right now, I would say I don't think the real estate market, the bottom is going to go out of the real estate market because there just isn't enough housing out there right now because of the 08 slowdown and then the slow pickup and builds were behind. And then with the COVID we're behind and with the supply chain disruptions we're behind. And so just like with the auto industry, they're behind. So even if we slide towards a recession or into one, they're not going to slow down auto production and they're not going to slow down home construction. I'm, I'm pretty, so if I said I wasn't going to make predictions about specific economic things at the beginning of the show, I guess I just lied. Uh, Josh, I'm going to wrap it up, brother. Thank you for always for calling in. Greatly appreciated. Uh, always happy to have you guys here. I'm a little over my hour. I don't like to do more than an hour because uh, I've bored you long enough. I appreciate you guys listening. Uh, make sure you like and share. It's always appreciated if you can share the show. That helps with our, our numbers. Uh, currently, I have no monetization with this show, but uh, if you want to be a sponsor and have me talk about your business, uh, you know, happy to do it. Just keep it legit. All right, guys.